Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. What did the hot dog say to the hamburger as it passed him in the running race? I don't know. What did he say? I relish the fact that you've mustered the strength to catch up. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Carolyn Polachek and Patrick Wimberly of the band Chairlift. That'll help break the ice. Their new album comes out next week. Later, comedy duo Tim and Eric tell us about their new movie, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. Hint, it did not cost a billion dollars yes, to make. Half a billion tops. <laughs> also coming up, Chuck Klosterman talks football. Songwriter Lucinda Williams is here with etiquette tips and writer Shalom Auslander on Famous Last Words. Speaking of which, these are not ours. We'll be back right after this news. Except you know what? This is a podcast. Let's skip the news. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, author and essayist Chuck Klosterman will tell us why the 0.01% of Americans who don't care about football should care about football. Yes, because we know most of those people probably listen to public radio. Absolutely. Also coming up, the ups and downs of roller coaster history. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you may have heard these cultural headlines. Robert Redford kicked off his annual Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. Wikipedia and Google are among the companies protesting anti-piracy legislation. Etta James, the legendary singer, has died at the age of 73. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Richard Lawson. He is a writer at the Atlantic Wire, which is the Atlantic Magazine's online news blog. Wait, it has to be online because it's a news blog. Yeah. Richard, thanks for joining us. Uh, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be celebrating the joyous news that Burger King is going to start delivering to the home. <laughs> really? This is something you've been waiting for, has it, Richard? Yeah. Well, I mean, right now, only my Atlanta colleagues in Washington, D.C. will benefit because it's been quietly happening in D.C., but they're expanding to Virginia and Maryland. But yes, home delivery of everything on the Burger King menu except for they don't do breakfast. Well, wh- how is this any different, though, than, than pizza delivery, you know? Convenience, I can understand uh, that. I-, I think the convenience factor is actually almost weirdly negligible in that they only will deliver if the Burger King location is within a 10-minute drive of your house. Wow. And Oh, and they guarantee it in 30 minutes or less, so you're you're basically getting something in 30 minutes that you could drive to in 10. <laughs> That's true. So it's That's like if you live at the drive-thru, <laughs> right. you can get delivery. You can just be like, I'm outside. And- <laughs> well. So they made it even less healthy. You don't even have to walk to the store. Do you still have to chew after they deliver? Because <laughs> no, I think they they just kind of stuff it in your mouth. The also the good scientific news is that they've developed thermal packaging technology, so your Whopper won't be you know cold so, after that grueling ten minute drive. So when you're older and you need a heart transplant, they'll be able to uh, deliver it warm to you. <laughs> exactly, it's full service. That's nice. The other thing though that comes to mind is how is this cost effective? The items at Burger King aren't that expensive. I mean, then they're going to spend fuel on top of it. I'm assuming this is free delivery. Two dollar delivery fee. Oh, um, and there is a minimum between eight and ten dollars. So. Probably isn't like a single purchase thing. This is maybe, I don't know, if you're having friends over, it's a little... I was going to say $10 at a fast food restaurant. I mean, that is $10, $1 items. Yeah. That's a is... lot of food. That's a lot of food. It's like yeah. the entire restaurant you could get That's for $10. Right. I'll just have the menu, please. I'm feeling flush. <laughs> Richard Lawson, thank you so much for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now time for a supersized cocktail. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1885, the first roller coaster was patented. Now, the folks at your dinner party will surely have ridden a coaster, I would hope, but we doubt they know its origins. Michelle Philippi tells the story. It was the late 19th century, and LaMarcus Adna Thompson was losing his mind. He was a natural carpenter and inventor, but somehow he'd ended up in the pantyhose business. It made him a fortune and also gave him a near nervous breakdown. So in the early 1880s, he sold his company and looked for inspiration to build something. He found it in Mount Chunk, Pennsylvania, where decades earlier, a coal company had built what's called a gravity railroad a nine-mile downhill track that let him transport coal out of the mine. By the 1880s, the railway wasn't used for mining anymore. Instead, people paid 50 cents each to ride down it. It gave Thompson an idea. He'd make a miniature gravity railroad and install it in the up-and-coming resort town of Coney Island, Brooklyn. In 1884, Thompson opened his, quote, switchback railway, America's first roller coaster. Space Mountain, it wasn't. Passengers sat in a car. It rolled down a track. Then workers pushed it up onto another track, which the car rolled down in the other direction. Top speed, six miles an hour. But thrill-seekers flocked to it anyway. The railway cost 1,600 bucks to build and brought in 700 bucks a day. Soon, roller coasters sprung up around the country, and Coney Island was one of the best places to ride them. At one point, it was home to three amusement parks. Even today, the island's most famous landmark is a coaster, Cyclone. It opened in 1927 on the site of Thompson's original Switchback Railway. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a cocktail to go along with it. I am joined by James Quigley. He's the part owner of Peggy O'Neill's, which is a bar on Coney Island. And are you actually under the cyclone, the, the, the roller coaster there, James? We're actually a few blocks away from it. All right. Well, can you see it? How's it, how's it doing? Cyclone is still chugging along nice. It is a New York City landmark. See, the idea of a roller coaster being a landmark actually frightens me because that means it's old, and then I'm scared that it's not up to it, code. It might be old, but <laughs> let me tell you, when Astroland was running the Cyclone roller coaster, there were guys. So oh. Astroland was a, a company that operated it before? Is that what you're saying? Yes, it was. Yeah, They were the operators of the Cyclone for the probably past 25 years, probably even more. There were guys, this is a story they told at least, they would walk the tracks every day with a bucket of nails and replace any nail that came out. To be honest, James, I'm not sure if that story is meant to inspire confidence or not, <laughs> but I can tell you it doesn't make me feel better. But it's like I've written it a few times. If you're riding the first car, you know, you're in the front and you take that big, huge dip, I mean, that's invigorating. If you're in the last car, that's where you get shaken up, though. That's where it's like, you know, make sure you book a chiropractor appointment the following day. <laughs> All right, well, you do you have a drink inspired by our history of the roller coaster? Yes, we do, actually. We have a signature drink at Peggy O'Neill's called the Thunderbolt. The Thunderbolt, okay. Uh, the Thunderbolt was one of the other signature roller coasters in Coney Island as well. Okay. That roller coaster was actually featured in the Woody Howland movie Annie Hall. Ah, okay. It's the roller coaster he supposedly grew up under. Mm-hmm. Just take an eight-ounce glass, fill it with ice. Okay. 
want to start off with two ounces of an orange-infused vodka. All right. The orange is there because it brings you old days of creamsicles and just the you know, of orange-flavored drink that you would get in Coney Island. Yeah, kind of a classic uh, seaside holiday dessert there. Yeah, classic taste. Okay. Next, you want to take two ounces of cranberry juice on top of that. All right. Cranberry juice is going to give you the colors. You know, there's a little red influence that was in the Thunderbolt roller coaster. So we're using cranberry not just for flavor, but for a little coloring as well. A little panache. I like it. And then to give you the rush, I mean, hey, you're on the Thunderbolt roller coaster. You take that first step, you're going to get a rush. So we're going to replace that rush with Red Bull. The Red Bull should make sure that your heart's pounding as if you were just on a roller coaster. Get your heart pounding, screaming, ready for more. All right, so Brendan and I learned a little more about LaMarcus Thompson, the coaster inventor. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he later added tunnels with painted scenery to his coaster rides, and he called them scenic railways, which is what many amusement park theme rides today are based on. Interesting. Yes. Meanwhile, there's a ride called Amtrak with tunnels and non-painted scenery that actually takes you somewhere. But... The trains do go about six miles an hour most of the time, kind of like Thompson. All right, so the scenery is still real, though. That's true. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll find the recipe for the Thunderbolt and all of our cocktails on our very real website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is writer Chuck Klosterman. He's best known for his novels and pop culture essays, but he is also a highly regarded sports writer. And he's here with a list that is perfect for this, the last week of the NFL playoffs. Hi, I'm Chuck Klosterman. Uh, my new novel is called The Visible Man, and I'm an editor and a writer uh, for the online sports journal Grantland. And uh, since it's football season, they've asked me to sort of give you some uh, reasons that will intrigue the person who doesn't normally like football into wanting to watch it. Uh, It's the most popular sport in America, but there's still some people who are like, I don't get it. Here's some possibilities that might change your thinking. The first thing that I would say is that football is irrefutably the most American sport we have. And I know people always associate that term with baseball, but you know, baseball started a little earlier And uh, it was kind of a game played by people with a degree of disposable income. It was was the kind of guys who played baseball usually had money to to have that much free time to stand out in a field and play this long, slow game. Whereas football is very much more a blue-collar game and developed a little later. And the ideas of America are really implemented into football inherently. The social hierarchy we have in, in American business, you can see in football, the way that there's players on the field who are like labor. You have the coach, who's like a middle manager, and then you have the owner, who of course is ownership. And people always want to argue that football is sort of this metaphor uh, for war. But in many ways, it's actually a metaphor for business and basically the way uh, uh, America runs. Secondly, and this might seem like a strange example, but football is an incredibly violent game where people really get hurt. And then in order to succeed at this, you need to have a a mentality that makes you different from the average person. There's a lot of talk now about concussions in football and how dangerous the sport is. That really does say something about the commitment, both physically and emotionally, that these players make. We're, we're so accustomed to watching sports and with this strange distance. But to me, the more you think about football in real terms uh, makes it more disturbing 
but also much more compelling. I mean, it it's not just a different job. It's not just something you do if you're lucky enough to be built very fast and very strong. It's so far outside our experience that it's amazing how accessible it is to the average person. Thirdly, I think a quality that would be interesting to anyone is sort of the dissonance between what football looks like and how complicated it actually is. You know, it's not a free-flowing sport like basketball or soccer. Almost everything you're seeing is orchestrated. The offensive coordinator is running a play in to the quarterback where he is describing essentially what 11 people are supposed to do simultaneously. It is complicated in a way that I think a lot of people who criticize athletes for being dumb would be shocked by. You know, I briefly and poorly uh, tried to play quarterback in high school. And you know, uh, like I've written seven books, I've worked for newspapers, but none of them were as difficult as playing quarterback. Not even close. Imagine doing something very complicated and requires a lot of memorization. The first time maybe you tried to ever like do your taxes online. You've got to keep things organized. You have to fill in certain boxes. Now imagine if you have to do that in four seconds and you will get hit by a baseball bat. That's the thing. A guest list from author Chuck Klosterman. He writes for the online sports journal Grantland, and his latest novel, which is not at all about football, is called The Visible Man. All right, we're going to take a little break, but coming up, acclaimed songwriter Lucinda Williams answers your etiquette questions and tells us her preferred barbecue method. I would be the person drinking, watching the person manning the girl. <laughs> Takes after you, Brendan. Plus, a reading from novelist <laughs> Shalom Oslander when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, a reading from novelist of the hour, Shalom Oslander. And later, Brendan learns about Rapunzel syndrome. And let me tell you, it is not magical. Oh, it is at all. so not magical. <laughs> but first, each week, listeners send us their etiquette questions. And here to answer them this time around is none other than Lucinda Williams. Time Magazine called her America's Greatest Songwriter. Her most recent album is Blessed. It's nominated for Best Americana Album at the Grammys in a few weeks, and that would be her 15th Grammy nomination, if you're counting. I think you've won three times, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Are you tired of the Grammys? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, of course you... not. But the album is, uh, the correct pronunciation is Blessed. Blessed. All right. Not Blessed. Pardon me. That's okay. But blessed has carries a different connotation. Generally, you say you're very blessed or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Blessed is the more biblical connotation. I see. As in, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Although listening to the song called Blessed, there is a kind of prayer-like quality or like a mantra quality to it. You keep saying we were yeah. blessed by, and then you list right. all these people from various walks of life. By the people you, some of whom you wouldn't think would be, you would be blessed by, you know. It is kind of a mantra. We were blessed by the minister who practiced what he preached. We were blessed by the poor man who said heaven is within reach. 
We were blessed by the girl selling roses, showed us how to live. We were blessed by the neglected child who knew how to forgive. We were blessed. We were blessed by the girl selling roses. That was what started the whole song. There's this little mom and pop Mexican restaurant Tom and I go to a lot. And That's your husband. This girl would come in selling roses and I want to know who she is, where she's from, you know, sure. yeah. is she happy? And, you know, when you see someone like that, we have a tendency to assume that person isn't happy. Mm. So it's a, there are a lot of different levels of meaning in that song. Well, your songs clearly show you spend a lot of time observing people and how they act. Yeah. <laughs> so we think you are just the person to answer our listener questions about how to behave. Well, I hope so. The first one is, I think, appropriately music-centered. Patrick in Santa Monica writes, Do you ever play or listen to your own music when you're not, quote, working? Or is that bad form? Well, the first part of the question is no. <laughs> <laughs> is it just because it's hard to, to hear just, your... I don't have any desire to listen to my own music. When I'm not working, I want to listen to other people's music. Because hmm. that's part of what influences me. And there, I get so many CDs from people, and I listen to everything. If somebody gives me a CD, I listen to at least part of it, a couple of songs. Really? Wow. Note to, no to all the thing. songwriters out there, you're going to be deluded That's right. Because you never know. And is that partially because you get fatigued after touring with your own songs? Because if I wrote Blessed, I'd be listening to that all the time. No, so proud of myself. <laughs> no. And besides that, the artist tends to hear... They be sort of self-critical. Yeah. And now the second part of this question, though, is if one was an artist that I guess sort of narcissistically kept listening to their album, would that be bad form? No, I don't. I don't. I have no idea. I've never known anyone to sit or you know put their own music on. Right. So Patrick in Santa Monica, basically the point is moot. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, we have another question, and it, this is away from the music world into food, something close to our hearts. Yeah. And this is from Tyler in Long Beach, California. And he asks, when attending a barbecue at someone's house, is it acceptable to step in and, quote, man the grill if it is apparent that they do not know what they're doing? Yes. It is. Oh, really? I would say yes. And you can do it politely, you know, just kind of come over and offer the person a beer or something and say, hey. Or maybe or, several beers and they'll fall over. Yeah. Or uh, you could go up with another person and say, hey, have you met my friend? <laughs> Let him kind of walk away with the person. Yeah. He, the person would probably actually be relieved. I like the polite deception involved sure. in this. Yeah. You, know, you just don't make them feel bad. You don't push them away. You just say, hey. Have some, go over to someone and say, hey, can you distract him while I <laughs> go over and take over? You know. And what would you do if you were to take over for the barbecuer? Do you have a recipe? I'm not. that. I wouldn't be the person, quote, manning the grill. You'd be the deceiver. I would be the person drinking, watching the person manning the grill. I would be right next to you. <laughs> That's true. All yeah. right. This is a question from John via email. When is it okay to tuck your pants into your boots? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. Well, you know, for the longest time, I didn't think it was okay. Really? Mm. I was, I had these great, you know, all these great boots, but you never could see the tops of them because they're always underneath my jeans. Yeah. So yeah. I was relieved to when I found out, oh, yeah, it's cool. You can tuck your pants into your boots. I think the pants need to be kind of more the skinny kind. You know, yeah. you don't want big pants billowing out. You don't yeah. want to look like MC Hammer. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> we're we're lucky that we live and in an era where one can comfortably tuck, yeah. you know, pants into boots. It also helps if you're tall and you have long legs. Yeah, much in life actually is yeah. helped by these things. You know, what are Bob Dylan's album covers? What's that one, Red Sun or something, where he's kind of kneeling down and he's in Israel? After he got saved yeah yes it's that one and you see him i think he's visiting in jerusalem and he's got his pants tucked in he's got his pants tucked in and you know i think marlon brando did that didn't he oh man so now you've got brando and dylan on your side i think it's it's okay and you know chrissy hind i was hanging out with her a while back we did a few shows together and her look was really tight Skinny yeah, yeah. jeans tucked into knee over the knee boots. Well, I don't know if John, who asked this question, can pull that look <laughs> off, but uh, John, yeah, go for the skinny jeans, whatever you do. Mm. All right, here's a, another question for you. This comes from Dave in Bellingham, Washington. Okay, my mother in law organized the usual family gathering over the holidays. Many of us in the family love to cook, especially for each other, but for two of the last three years, my mother in law has insisted that she get takeout fried chicken. Considering how much we all love to cook, are happy to share, and how much effort we put into traveling to get to her house, I am incensed with the thought of another holiday bucket of chicken. Do I say anything? And if so, what? Hmm. Well, clearly, she doesn't want to cook. The mother-in-law, right? It sounds like they're all kind of gathering at her house. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like her house, her rules. That's what I think. Well, I mean, what are you going to say to her? Would you please make lasagna from scratch or I don't know. I That's wish, true. you know what? I wish that were my only family problem. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was the only problem I had. I would be happy. Appreciate the chicken. I think you should just let it go. Sure. That's right. Dave's are bigger chickens to fry in the <laughs> yes. world. And Lucinda Williams, thanks so much. And I believe you have a mini tour that you're starting at the end of this month. Yeah. So we will look for you in the West Coast. Okay. Thank you. Eavesdrop. Shalom Auslander's writing has appeared in Esquire and The New Yorker. His Blackley comic new novel just came out. It's called Hope, a Tragedy. Today we overhear him reading some dinner party worthy excerpts. Kugel thought specifically about the experience of dying. He thought about the pain, about the fear. Most of all, he thought about what he would say at the final moment, his ultima verba, his last words. They should be wise, he decided, which is not to say morose or obtuse, simply that they should mean something, amount to something. They should reveal, illuminate. He didn't want to be caught by surprise, speechless, gasping, not knowing at the very last moment what to say. No, wait, I oof. I haven't really given it much splat. If I could just kablammo. We are all mankind a story collectively and individually, and Kugel didn't want his individual story to end in an ellipsis. A period, sure, if you're lucky. An exclamation mark, okay. A question mark, probably. That seemed the punctuation all stories, collectively and individually, should end with, after all. Not an ellipsis, though. Anything but an ellipsis. Don't end it like this, said Pancho Villa, at a loss for words after being shot nine times in the chest and head. Tell them, he said before dying, I said something. Kugel kept a small notebook and pen with him at all times for just these thoughts. Now and then, when a fitting last sentiment or final set of words occurred to him, 
he would quickly write them down. Over the years, he had filled many such notebooks, but had yet to arrive at the precise right notion. The difference between the right word and the wrong word, said Mark Twain, is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. Twain's last words to his daughter were, if we meet, then he died. So timing's important, too. Kugel was approaching 40, and though he hadn't yet decided for certain what he wanted his last words to be, he had long known for certain what he didn't want them to be. He didn't want them to be begging. More than anything, he didn't want to beg. No pleases, or knows, or waits, or please knows, or no waits. Please don't hurt me, Louis XV's mistress begged her executioner as he led her to the guillotine. He hurt her. Let's cool it, brothers, said Malcolm X to his assassins. They shot him 16 times. Perhaps they had cooled it, thought Kugel. Perhaps they'd been planning on shooting him 20 times. It behooves the victim in these matters to be specific. Kugel was certain that whatever last words a person chose to utter in his final moments, everyone shared the same final thought, and this was it the bewildered, dumbfounded statement of his own disappointing cause of death. Shark? Train? Really? I get hit by a train? Malaria? F*** off. Malaria? Regardless of what was spoken, this and only this was a human's last thought, the last pure cognition that passed through a human being's mind, every human being's mind, before that mind ceased to function evermore. Not Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, not forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, only the ludicrous, laughable cause of its own unfathomable demise. Benito Mussolini's last words, as he faced his executioner, were these, Shoot me in the chest! His last thought, though, Kugel was certain, was this, Shot in the chest? No death, after all, does any life any justice. Our endings are always a letdown, an insult, a surprise, dumber than we thought and less than we'd hoped for. Crucifixion, thought Jesus. Get out. Hemlock, thought Socrates. Wrapped in a Torah scroll and burned alive, thought Rabbi Akiva. You have got to be kidding me. Shalom Auslander, reading from his just-released novel, Hope, a Tragedy. You're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we speak with someone who knows something that we don't, so we can hold our own if the topic comes up in dinner conversation. Our teacher this week is Rachel Hers. She is an expert on the psychology of smell and emotion. She has a new book out called That's Disgusting, Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion. And Rachel, our show's goal is to give people things to talk about at their dinner parties, yet mm-hmm. the dinner table seems like the worst place <sighs> to discuss disgust. So let's start there. Why is the place where we eat one of the least friendly forums to talk about this emotion? Well, that's a really interesting question because being disgusted is physically the nauseated feeling. So hmm. vomiting is the classic you know, end result of being super disgusted. So you really wouldn't want to be doing that at a dinner table, <laughs> most likely. Unless you're in ancient Rome. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Disgust yeah. is, in fact, an extremely social emotion. 
So it has a lot of, it portrays a lot of information to the social group around you. So the the other people who are also there are are experiencing in kind with you. So it's not always the best thing to be feeling, especially at a dinner table. But if the food is rotted or poisonous, (laughs) it would be good if everybody started vomiting. (laughs) Now, is that, is there a relationship to the fact that the food may be dangerous for us and that's why we're repulsed by it? I mean, is there some sort of correlation? Exactly. So, for instance, if we were at the uh, primordial dinner table around the buffalo <laughs> that, that someone had just slaughtered for us, okay. well, let me back it up a tiny bit and say that this buffalo might have been dead for several days. Okay. And uh, we're pretty hungry, and we sit down to the communal water buffalo, and one guy <laughs> takes a, a slab of meat first and sticks it in his mouth and then makes this face, which is this big grimace, and sticks his tongue out and scrunches up his eyes and probably spits it out, maybe even vomits, then we say, hmm, not going to go there. So it has a big, it conveys a lot of meaning to the other people within the group. So Mm. it has this evolutionary advantageous component that other people benefit from your suffering, so to speak. And that face, the bad buffalo face, is universal, right? In, In your book, you discuss how all humans make the same disgust face. So yes, the mouth tends to close, but sometimes the tongue can stick out. So we sort of make this grimace where we're scrunching our mouth closed. We scrunch our eyes, and that also forces the muscles that are around our cheeks to sort of push against our nostrils. So in fact, we're we're breathing in less. So the idea is that we're closing ourselves off to the outside, preventing the outside from getting into your inside. So you have this, you're protecting the sacredness of the inner self from the danger of the outside. You know, This book is chock full of interesting studies, anecdotes, and theories, so much so that I want to do sort of a lightning round here where (laughs) where I mention some of the interesting things I found in the book, and you tell me a little bit more about them. Are you game for that? Sure, yeah. Cool. Yep. So the first one is something that I found disgusting, but I can't stop thinking about. It is Rapunzel syndrome. Can you explain what that is? So Rapunzel syndrome is when people are compelled to eat human hair and they are so lustful for human hair, they will, you know, eat it out of your hairbrush. So, for example, if someone has Rapunzel syndrome and they're at your dinner table, they will sneak (laughs) into the bathroom and start looking through for your hairbrushes and hoping to find one stuck with your hair to then suck it all out. And then they'll come back and they say, sorry, you know, I I think I'm a little full now. I'm not really interested (laughs) in dessert. But that's because they have a hairball growing inside them. And people who have this syndrome can sometimes literally require operations to remove the hairball. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. There, there you go. Well, that's one disgusting fact that was interesting. Here's a less disgusting fact. When it comes to bodily fluids, I never thought of it like this. Tears are the only fluid that is not disgusting. That's right. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, tears are mainly water. So mm-hmm. water is... We equate with purity and cleanliness, and and purity and cleanliness are basically the opposite of disgust. Okay. The second thing is that tears come from our eyes. And our eyes, we sort of portray as the windows to our soul. Eyes have a lot of positive associations around them. You know, we look into each other's eyes. We, The eyes are very special to us. And so I think the fact that they come from the eyes gives them this more privileged, more good place in the hierarchy of bodily fluids than if they came from our mouth or, or <laughs> wherever the other ones come from, <laughs> yeah. our, our guts. Okay, last topic in our lightning round, the idea of a unique odor print. So yes, the idea of an odor print is that every single one of us, unless you have an identical twin, every single person has a unique odor print. That is to say that your body odor profile is completely singular to you and no other person on the planet has it. It's like your fingerprint. Wow. And 
This has to do with our immune system and the fact that each of us also has a unique immune system, and our immune system is what codes for the diseases we might carry, as well as what we can defend off well or maybe not so well. Yeah. And this is represented, strangely enough, not by our eye color or our skin tone or anything else, but the outside manifestation of the genes of our immune system is your body odor. And wow, really? Women in, oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and women in particular are tuned into this in terms of selecting mates. So women will find a man who smells really good to be like the biggest turn on, bigger than how he looks, bigger than his wallet, et cetera. Wow. So, well, I was hoping as a radio person that the voice maybe had a strong uh, you know, <laughs> correlation, but apparently not. Well, I can say that listening to you, you seem to have a very attractive voice, but I have no idea what you smell like, so I can't really say anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for this disgusting discussion. <laughs> it's a fascinating book, and I think we figured out a way people can present this at a dinner party without repulsing their neighbors. Or at least not repulsing them too much. So, Brendan, I don't know. Hmm. I still don't think I'm going to be talking about Rapunzel syndrome in polite company. No? No. Really? And, uh, and next time I host a party, all brushes are going in a safe. Well, and that's final. Meanwhile, I'm going to be buying some super healthy smelling cologne, so I might sure. need to go in a safe. I understand. Or just put a <laughs> vitamin C behind each ear. There's an idea. Uh, folks, we are going to take a break, but the comedy duo Tim and Eric tell us the secret to comedy when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from some of you in our letter segment, and then we'll check out a new song from The Shins. Yes, millions of Gen Y kids just pulled their cars over to the side of the road. Or their baby carriages. Sure, <laughs> listen. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Rico, this week, yes. Bone Luge. I beg your pardon. <laughs> bone luge. Oh. It's a new food trend where you eat the marrow out of an animal bone, thus creating a channel for the bartender to pour booze from one end of the bone into your waiting mouth. <laughs> wow. Yeah. This is happening in reality? Good question. Good question. <laughs> there are photos of people doing this online, All right. but it does feel like a stunt or at least wrong. I agree. <laughs> yeah. In fact, many food editors have refused to discuss it altogether. Mm. One of them is Kat Kinsman. She is the editor of Eatocracy, CNN.com's food blog. I reached out to her and asked her why she won't cover bone losing. Not all ideas are good ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a tremendous supporter of bone marrow to the point where I have a bone marrow scoop tattooed up the back of, of my Asobuco bone. What? So, really? I do. I, I have various tattoos. <laughs> and, uh, you know, an all consider there will be no bone luge tattoo. So you got a bone, oh, so a bone marrow spoon. So let's, so for those who haven't eaten bone marrow in a while, mm -hmm. it's served, it's just the bone, it's often cut in half and it's roasted. And sometimes herbs are put in there, different things are, are kind of on top of the bone marrow. And then you get a little spoon to kind of scoop out. The meat? Is that the word? Is it meat? It's, it's the marrow. It's the and marrow. when you cook these bones, when you roast them at a really high temperature, it liquefies and just turns gelatinous and beautiful. And people like it spread on toast. Usually it comes with something acidic to cut through it a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes a gremolata, really classic Fergus Henderson preparation, involves a parsley salad and, with a lot of lemon to it. It's really fantastic. And it's a beautiful thing. And usually 
uh, when the bone is emptied of the marrow, when you scoop it all out, it still has a little bit of residue in there. Now, with bone, bone losing, they are suggesting that you take this bone, which now has a channel in it where the marrow used to be, and put it up to your face and have a bartender pour <laughs> a shot of your designated alcohol down it so it slams into your mouth. And 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 so and that's actually uh, reminiscent of the the ice luge, which was is. kind of like a fratty drinking phenomena <laughs> where people pour booze down thing of ice. Right, so it gets colder as it comes to you. Oh, see, I think that's when a bartender does it. This is when a mixologist does it. That's right. This is a little (laughs) more foodie than fratty. Part of the reason I'm talking to you instead of bone losing right now is because, like you, this quote-unquote phenomena feels suspect to me. Mm -hmm. Can we unpack that for a second? Yes. My problem with it is that the act itself feels more like a stunt than a new technique that will enhance, you know, eating marrow or drinking booze. That's the thing. These aren't two things that were originally meant to go together. Yeah. Uh, I I am inherently suspicious of anything that is meaty booze, uh, which has become a thing. And you know what? Booze is really great on meat. You say bourbon glaze something, a tequila drenched, you know. Beef bourguignon. Yes. All of those things were meant... They're match made in heaven. It doesn't work in reverse somehow. I've never had a meaty booze that I've actually enjoyed. And you're talking about when you say meaty booze, there are some cocktails where they actually put like beef stick as a kind of a garnish and other things like that, right? It's become a thing. There was a trend called fat washing for a little while that a very reputable mixologist (laughs) came up with. It was... uh, I think it was Evan Freeman who was doing this, but came up with a technique to uh, put together meat and booze and then sort of take the fat out of it. So there, so the flavors of the meat, and it may in particular have been bacon, were still mm. in, in the meat. Mm. But, you know, and he, he did it very well. I still... I, I've had I have had it from various bartenders, and I've never actually enjoyed it. But to be fair, every successful food pairing was at one point a new food trend. Uh, you know, just a couple of years ago here in L.A., we saw the explosion of Korean tacos, which paired Korean mm-hmm. food like kimchi with Mexican food like tacos and burritos. And those flavors go together marvelously. And that combo will probably live on. So how can someone know whether or not a new food phenomenon is going to stick around? I mean, who knows? Well, some of the some of those things are actually rooted in, in food science and history. If you consider that there's kimchi on long braised meat, that is from a Korean tradition, mm-hmm. you know, and there's there's barbecue and tacos, so you know, let's try Korean barbecue and tacos. It there's there's a reason why certain things work together really well. And uh, sometimes things it seem unlikely at first and they are just delicious. Well, I could see how maybe sherry and meat residue could kind of pair well together. My other problem, I think the other thing that bothers me with this, is that it just seems so gluttonous. It's so decadent. Bone marrow, which used to be a peasant food, mm-hmm. but it, it now costs like $15, $18 at, you know, at a fancy restaurant. And then you're supposed to add a shot of high-end booze, which is another 10 bucks. Now you spend $30. It just seems, as my friend said the other day, this almost seems like the end of times. <laughs> Well, the, the part about it that sort of upsets me is that I really actually, I like both of those things. I like the booze. I don't want, I, I don't want to use a nice booze in a, in a shot that's just going to go slamming into my mouth. I like, call me like sort of Fraser Crane or whatever, but I like <laughs> sipping my sherry. I like enjoying yeah. my scotch. Yeah. And maybe, having... maybe a kneecap. Maybe you could drink it out of a kneecap. And just... <laughs> I would support four loco, four loco down, down some bone marrow. That's what we, <laughs> that I'm all for. Pour your favorite 40 down it. I'm good with that. Yeah. But not, not some fancy high end tequila which, or sherry, which is what they're recommending. Respect the booze. <laughs> Respect the marrow. 
So, Brendan, uh-huh. you just talked about not talking about a food trend, thereby talking about it. See how I did that? You had your bone rouge <laughs> and ate it, too. That's right. But I think the real victory is that I didn't have to actually try any bone rouge. <laughs> well played, old Thank man. you. Thank you. Yes. Folks, if you have a fake food store you want us to not cover, give us a shout yeah. at dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guests of honor this week are Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim. They are the creators and stars of the sketch comedy show with my favorite title ever. Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job. They've produced five seasons of it for the Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Their new movie, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie, will be a midnight show at this week's Sundance Film Festival and is available on demand starting next Friday. Hello, Eric. Hi, how are you? Very well, and hello, Tim. Thanks for having us. For those who haven't seen it, which at this point is almost no one, can you give us the brief plot line? Uh, Tim and Eric are given a billion dollars to make their film, and we blow the billion dollars within the first two minutes of the film. And uh, it's become sort of a, a friendship movie about how to avoid paying back that money. So it's, it's a film for our times. It's about how not to pay back cash. Well, it's more a film about excess. Still a, still a film for our times. Yeah, but don't think that the film gets mired in the details of the billion dollars. It's not a very uh, heady film. It's, it's not about the money. Well, this, is, uh, this is actually my first question to you then. Your show seems so difficult to make into a movie. It is you know, patently surreal and absurd. You could probably fit about 10,000 of your sketches into the running time of the average film. How difficult was it to do, and how did you approach doing it? Well, the first the first thing we did was not try to make uh, a 90-minute version of our show. We decided that we were going to make a movie, and there would be a, a big distinction between the show and the movie. Uh, but that said, there's plenty of... Uh, you won't be surprised to see the how crazy we've made the film. The beginning of it does start with... Like, it's basically like 15 movies in a row. You have uh, these sort of like advertising parodies, and then you parody... Something that I can't believe has, hasn't been parodied yet, which is the opening of movies in theaters nowadays with the endless logos of various production companies. Well, we wanted it to be a movie within a movie commenting on all the horrible things that you have to experience in a big blockbuster movie. Obviously, our movie didn't cost a billion dollars, but we wanted it to start off like there was these special things that you had to do to watch the movie and certain kind of sound systems that was made just for this movie. And we like love playing off that. Here's how the Schlang Super Seat works. First, several needles are connected to a vein in your arm. Chemicals are then introduced to synchronize your emotions with the movie. Next, air tubes are inserted into the nasal cavity to guide you into a natural breathing pattern. Exotic odors are released to match the excitement of the movie. Finally, your legs are moved out of your line of sight and into our patented Schlang stirrups to give you a viewing experience you'll never forget. Part of what's funny to me, I have to say about your comedy, is how unpracticed it looks. You'll, you know, misenunciate words. You'll, you know, sometimes it feels a little like you took as much caffeine as you could possibly drink and just sort of went insane. (laughs) It takes a lot of work to make it look like it's not a lot of work. A lot of it's in the editing, cutting, you know, to the right reaction shots. A trick we use is we shoot a lot of our uh, reactions of people and extras when they don't know the camera's rolling. So that's when you get a really weird pose, eyes closed, and 
in the movie there's a lot of story points that we get really bored of so that's when you'll see us kind of mispronouncing things <laughs> really it's just a function of you getting bored with plot yeah a lot of the times and improvising and just having a fun blast well this is my question how much of this is is improvised how much do you allow that to happen we were we were only you know because eric and i were wearing so many different hats we wrote the script and then didn't look at it again until um you know five minutes before we were going to shoot it so uh, a lot of the lines uh, were, you know, improvised after realizing the lines we wrote weren't as good as they could be. So it's a blueprint. Perfect word for it. That's a, that's the word we use. Blueprint. Brown print. Is it in brown or blue? It's in brown. Okay. <laughs> uh, I am a big fan of surreal comedy. I think a lot of people who grew up with Bugs Bunny and Monty Python and Steve Martin are as well. I feel like for a long time, mainstream show business didn't give that kind of comedy a lot of support. But I feel like that's changing. Like basically everything on Adult Swim is like that now. There are plenty of movies that are patently absurd. Why do you think that's happening? I think uh, people are a little smarter now and, and recognize, I mean, people are probably a lot dumber now too, but they, they recognize comedy. They see the punchlines coming to like 10 steps ahead now. So I think it's a refreshing to see people that are, are not just um, handing jokes to people on the silver platter. They're, you know, we're challenging the audience a little bit. It's like the, the way to avoid kind of people knowing what's coming next is to do the absolute last thing that could possibly ever happen. Exactly. And certainly not to provide them with a rim shot or a uh, applause break to tell them what, what's funny. We have two questions that we ask everybody on the show. The first one is, what question, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, should we not ask you? How do you guys come up with your ideas? Is a really frustrating question that we get all the time, and I don't, we don't have the answer to that. It's not like a pill we take or a, you know, or a shake we drink. This is, I do think, the reason why it's asked is because I think people want to believe that it's the most fun process ever because what it seems like is a huge amount of play. No, it's a lot of staring at each other across from a BLT sandwich going, I don't know, we can try that. Let's try that. A lot of people think we're Zane brains and we're goofballs and put on Jester's ads and do, you know, smoke a lot of weed and come up with some zany things. but. We're actually just serious conservative men that happen to think father-son relationships are funny and all kinds of weird corporate videos. You know, we just share the same kind of silliness. The here's my here's the second question we ask everyone. It's less of a question than an order, really. Tell us something we don't know. Well, we have a little comedy secret that we used on season five of our TV show. Is when we were making lots of bits, working long hours we started eating Reese's Pieces candy and all of a sudden we would get energized and we would be started having a good time and the next day we came in there were bags of Reese's around and bowls ready for us and our crew realized that to keep us amped up and get some good gags so they got to leave those pieces all over the place there was a downside to that because after a while Eric and I started to lose our ability to taste the Reese's Pieces so we'd be eating them and saying these are just not good anymore it tastes like wax in my mouth and it was because we had gotten so accustomed to them that we were not, not able to enjoy them anymore. <laughs> so there is actually a funny pill that you guys take. Yeah, <laughs> for season, yeah, we got, we had to do it. <laughs> it is kind of the like heroin, right? You get addicted to it and then you have to do more and more and more and more. So you need to take, you need to purify somehow the Reese's Pieces and just get it to maximum potency, it sounds like. Yeah, we tried heroin, it didn't work. It didn't work creatively. We got very sick from it and addicted to it as well. 
but that did not help the creative process. Did you try mixing it with Reese's Pieces? No, we didn't, but you know, we did go through a long withdrawal period when we got off of the pieces, and it was bad. So Rico, yeah, you can't just quit the pieces cold turkey. No. No way, man. You just gotta step it down to peanut M&Ms, then lemon heads, uh, then fresh oranges. Oranges is the goal, is it? Yeah, and never go to a movie theater, because, you know, you'll probably fall off the wagon. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough process. You gotta be strong. You gotta be. All right, listeners, now it's time to hear from you. Each week, our voicemail and email inboxes fill up with listener messages. Here's just a random one. Hi, Bren. This is your father. Your show is absolutely wonderful. It's fantastic. That guy sounds really smart. Yeah, pretty representative of our audience, I think. Sure. Uh, Although, occasionally, a listener will take issue with one of our guests. Like a few weeks back on our cocktail segment, when L.A. bartender John Francis made us a Japanese-themed drink. This is Erica. I'm in Shanghai. I just wanted to make a little correction. During the bartender section, the bartender said that shochu was Korean, but actually shochu is Japanese, and soju is the name for the Korean alcohol. I'm half Japanese, so I'm pretty familiar with shochu. My mom's actually a huge fan. Now, listeners also had the gall to criticize another guest, legendary folk singer Judy Collins. She came by and listed three songs she wished had been written about her, one of them being Adele's recording of the tune love song. Hey, my name is Christopher. I'm in Los Angeles. And I heard Judy Collins say that Adele had written love song. I literally almost crashed my car when nobody decided to correct her and tell her that the cure was the originator of that song. So shame on you, dinner party. Shame. Yes, Christopher, we knew the song was originally written by the cure. Jeez, man. We were just mesmerized by Judy's blue, blue eyes. Amazing. And we didn't call her on it. You do have a point, though, that was not fair to the songwriter, Robert Smith. We're very sorry, Robert. Sorry, we know you listen. Of course. But, you know, interestingly, no one caught a music error we actually made. Uh. Last week, Adam Grandusiel from the band The War on Drugs listed some songs he likes to play at a dinner party. Mm. One was A Pagan Place by The Waterboys. Unfortunately, we played a clip from Red Army Blues, a different and equally great song from the same album. That is true. Adam, we hope you still invite us to your next dinner party. Speaking of which, that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week, the band Chairlift acts out their dinner party playlist. They were active in the late 60s, early 70s. They were first called the Mama Cats and then changed their name to Honey LTD. Speaking in cat tongues. Interesting. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And guess what, everyone? The Shins are back. Or at least they'll be back this March when they release their full-length album entitled Port of Morrow. To tide you over till then, here's an advanced single simply called Simple Song. Bon appétit. Well, this is just a simple song to say what you done.
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Hello? Bren, this is your father. Uh huh. You promised me if I pretended to like your show, uh huh, that you would send me Kai Rizdal's autograph. Yeah. What gives? I'm working on it. <laughs>